Good morning, church. Grateful for Jordan praying for um, the South Simcoe police officers, the families, and, and the policing community. We have around a half a dozen policing families in our own church family, and we're grateful for them and, and recognize it isn't just the officers, but of course their spouses and their children at home and their extended family that feel the pain of such things. And uh, we know that there's a, uh, at least in one of the cases, uh, one of the officers, a very close personal connection to one of the families in our church. And so a very painful time and a stark reminder of the things that we're going to look at in Revelation 9 today. The abject brokenness in our world and the desperate need that this world has of a Savior. Amen? That's what we see every time we um, read about such heartaches and tragedies. We are going to be in Revelation chapter 9. Um, maybe you've been in a situation where someone said to you, uh, what's it going to take uh, for you to change your mind? Maybe you were in a situation like that even this week. What's it going to take for you to change your mind? And uh, usually by the time you get to that point where someone's asking you that question, you're already uh, pretty dug in, pretty firmly entrenched uh, in your point of view and our own human propensity to, uh, towards stubbornness uh, has kicked in. Uh, anyone, anyone here know what I'm talking about? Anyone? know what I'm talking about. Only a few brave souls willing to admit it. This stubbornness, this unwillingness to change our minds applies to uh, toddlers, uh, to teenagers, for sure, who think they know everything, uh, 20-somethings who are only slightly more mature teenagers, right up to those in their senior years and every adult in between. We tend towards stubbornness, intransigence, and unwillingness to change our minds. We don't like to change our thinking. And this is especially true and reinforced given the culture that we live in that tells us that everyone has their own truth. You have your own truth. I have my own truth. That's my truth. And when we say that, of course... We're saying, I don't need to change my mind. And that all relates to Revelation chapter 9, because here we have a picture of stubbornness, the stubbornness of unbelievers, so extreme and so illogical that it's painful to read. It's tragic. Because they don't want to change their mind, even though all the evidence around them is pointing to a sovereign and supreme God who rains down judgment on their heads. But they show, in the greatest way possible, the stubbornness of the human heart. For those who may be hearing this message, but who have not yet expressed faith in Jesus Christ, this should be your wake-up call. And I warned you, I declared this the day that we did Revelation 9 to be don't come to church Sunday. If you are, and some of you just flatly did not listen to me and came. But if you're an unbeliever, and you came today, you have been warned. This message is for you. 
If you're an unbeliever and you're watching on the live stream or on demand, this message is for you. But we're going to see just how difficult it is for human beings to change their minds, to shake their confidence in themselves, and to give up their staunch resistance to Jesus Christ and his gospel. There's no hope and only heartache and despair and judgment unless I agree with what God says in his word and I turn to him in repentance. So let me read the chapter for us. It's not cheery. Revelation chapter 9. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. And he opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek, he's called Apollyon. The first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was tw twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode with them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by, no, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who are not killed by these plagues, 
did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. In your notes and up on the screen, you're going to see this is the uh, thrust of what we're looking at. When I agree with God's word and, and turn to him, I escape. We see this from the, from the Christian's perspective of Revelation 9. Look at everything I'm escaping. Look at everything that is not going to befall me because I have the seal of God on my forehead. When I agree with God's word and turn to him, I escape, first of all, the torment of future judgment. Christians get a get-out-of-judgment-free card. Oh, it's not free to Jesus, but it's free to us. He paid the price for us to be able to escape the torment of future judgment. Judgment, in contrast, is pending for anyone who has not believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who have believed escape these judgments. So verse 1, this fifth angel blows his trumpet and a star, this is a, an angel, a word for an angel or a messenger, fallen from heaven to earth. The images of a star falling, this is John is seeing it, it's like a falling star, but it's a messenger of God descending to the earth. He was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. This is obviously hell various words used to describe this bottomless pit. In fact, the Greek word behind bottomless pit is the word abyss. In the scriptures, we hear the words Gehenna, Hades, Sheol, the underworld. Jesus himself speaks of this place. We have a difficult under, uh, time understanding exactly what we're talking about. When we think about heaven and hell, we naturally being on earth, think about heaven as being above and hell being beneath. This language is even used in the scriptures. It's far more complex than that, of course. It's, it's, it's not physical so much as it's both physical and spiritual. It's metaphysical. It transcends the physical. So this angel descends from heaven to hell. When he gets there, verse 2, he opened this abyss, a huge amount of smoke came out, which filled the air and darkened the sun. By the way, if you want to track this down further, very similar prophecy in Joel 2, first 11 verses. And what's unleashed here is a demonic horde pictured as locusts that were given power like the power of scorpions. Now, it's interesting to ask the question here, who gave them this power? They were given this power, but who gave these locusts their power? Well, the only one who can give power, and it's uncomfortable to think about at this point, but it's God himself. He's sovereign. Satan and his minions can only do their evil if God allows it. In fact, that's a foundational principle of the book of Job, if you've ever read it, that Satan was not permitted to afflict Job unless he had God's permission to do so. Satan is constrained by God. And you can see here that these demonic locusts, too, 
are constrained by God. Verse 4, they were told not to harm the grass, the plants, or the trees. Clearly, Green Party members, (laughs) concerned for the environment. No, in fact, that's what locusts normally did. In fact, in Joel 2, the plague of locusts stripped the earth of all of the green. That's what people in the Middle East were accustomed to, in fact. Not unlike the caterpillars of past years here, stripping all the green off the trees. But no, these locusts would not do that. They would have a special purpose. In fact, they're not locusts at all. We know they're demons. So the judgment is on those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, which takes us back to Revelation 7 and that perfect number of believers and all believers of all time who are sealed by God, that sealing of God on us that identifies us with him. We need not be confused about our identity and also secures us for all eternity so that we need not wonder about our destiny. We are sealed by God. Those without the seal, however, are in trouble because these locusts, verse 5, also verse 10, were allowed to torment them for five months. And five months, uh, commentators are wrestling, why five months? Well, it's, it's, a, it's not a long period of time. Five months isn't a long period of time, but it's long enough if you're suffering. Would you agree? If you're suffering constantly, five months is still a long period of time. It's short, but not too short. They were allowed to torment them, verse 5 says, for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. I'm told that uh, scorpions rarely kill anybody, but they can cause very nasty pain and suffering for those who are stung by them. Now, throughout this, as God is necessarily bringing his judgment on the earth, we've talked about it before, we're talking about it here again in chapter 9, God is still holding out the hope of the gospel, and he's still offering his salvation to those who would repent. The whole point of limiting the amount of time, the whole point in the fifth trumpet of of no one actually dying, but only being afflicted by this, is to give people an opportunity to see that this is God at work. For them to say, I've had enough. I admit my sin. I, can, I confess it. I surrender my life to Jesus. We are so stubborn as human beings. Now look down to verse 12. We'll come back to that thought. John records that this is the first woe. This is the first terror. The word woe means terror or calamity or disaster or horror. horror. This is the first of them. There's two more woes to come. It's a further warning that judgment is coming hard. And as a side note, the three woes parallel the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets. The fifth and sixth that we see here in chapter 9. And in fact, verse 13, the sixth trumpet only adds to the accelerating pace of God's judgment. I mean, there's so many similarities between the image of the locusts, which we're going to look at in more detail in a few moments in verses 7 through 11, and what we see in verses 13 through 19, which is the sixth trumpet. The image of this mighty army, this cavalry, this army of horsemen. 
There's a sense in verse 15 of the perfection of the timing of God, God's precise control over all of this. And again, the restraining of God's judgment to give time for people to repent. Verse 16, the number of mounted troops was innumerable. It's overwhelming. Verses 17 through 19, it's overwhelming. It's menacing. It's unstoppable. And in the sixth trumpet, of course, it accelerates from simply hurting to seeing one third of people on the earth killed. And all of that to say, you ignore God to your own peril. You ignore God to your own peril. Secondly, notice that through repentance, I also escape the terror of facing God. The thought of facing God should elicit joy. And it does for the true believer. For the sinner, however, it should rightly elicit fear. You should be afraid to meet God if you do not yet know him. I mean, these judgments fell on the earth. Um, as these judgments fell on the earth, verse 6, people, verse 6 is so difficult to read and think about. People will seek death and not find it. And John says it twice in case we didn't get how, how desperate the condition is of these unrepentant sinners how torn up they are inside, how much pain they're enduring through all of this. They will long to die, verse 6 says, but death will flee from them. They're in such pain that they would prefer death. And that's not so hard to understand for us today. That maybe we've known someone who's lived through such pain in their own life that they'd say to, to you as a loved one, I would rather die. People who have arranged their own deaths or people who have thought this through, if I get to this point, it's not hard to understand at all. The challenge in this though for the unbelievers is, is that they don't fully grasp that death would bring them face to face with the judge. They would escape one affliction only to be met with one that is far more terrifying. And so in this verse, you have this tragic irony. They're in such denial about their status before God that they have illogically concluded that they are not deserving of these judgments or can somehow escape escape these judgments through death. This is the society that we actually live in. That people are living in denial about these things. As we look at society around us, we see the same. People have forgotten God. That's a line, by the way, from Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who made his comment about Soviet Russia. And, and when he was asked why Soviet Russia became so terrible, why they got themselves into the predicament they got themselves into. And he said in, 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 uh, in a speech, he said, reflecting what he had been told by his grandfather, we have forgotten God. 
You may forget about God, unbeliever. You may have forgotten about God, but God has not forgotten about you. Again, a thought that is so comforting to the Christian is so terrifying to the one who isn't. God has not forgotten about any person. There is no escaping what we're reading here in Revelation, no matter, no matter what you tell yourself, no matter how you convince yourself that death would somehow be better. Now look at this next. Through repentance, I also escape the trauma of sin's effects. Now, first of all, let me qualify something here. Because if you're reading that in a discerning way, you're going, no, 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 we do, we do face the trauma of sin in our lives. But let me qualify it by saying this, I will escape the eternal trauma. That's what Revelation 9 is about. I will escape the eternal trauma of sin's effects. But I recognize that I may not escape the temporal ones. Because we all know the reality is believers... Some of us have the ongoing consequences of sinful choices that we made at a different time in our lives. Many of us have echoes of our past, relationships that have gone sideways and are irreconcilable, losses that cannot be quantified because of decisions that we made in the past. And also that we often also face the consequences of other people's choices. Things that are outside of our control, decisions we didn't make, that someone else made, sinful choices that affected us. But if we have surrendered to Christ and make decisions on an ongoing basis to live as God intends, then the principle holds true. I will avoid the trauma of sin's effect if I choose not to sin. Amen? I'll say it again. I'll give you another run at it. I will avoid the trauma of sin's effects if I choose not to sin. Amen. It's as simple as that. Now John describes here these locust-like demons. By the way, they're not helicopters and they're not drones. Write that down. This is, this is a spiritual battle. This is a spiritual battle happening right now that will be manifest in the physical realm before the final day. We are currently right now, as I proclaim the word of God in this room, we are currently right now at war in the spiritual realm. We're engaged day to day in an unseen spiritual war whose effects are seen in the pain and destruction we see in the world and in our own lives. So the specific imagery really speaks to us not only in the apocalyptic sense. Revelation 9 is not simply future and us go, oh, that's going to happen someday. I need to be ready for it. No, it's also happening right now. Again, throughout Revelation, we're seeing multiple partial fulfillments of what will be a final and complete fulfillment of the prophecies of the last day. And that was a foundational principle of our study of Revelation. 
So this description of a yet future judgment also relates to the sin battle we're in now. And so I said we'd come to verses 7 through 11, and we're going to go into more depth here in the description of these locusts. And we're going to look at nine descriptors of these locust-like demons. And I'll say this, that commentators uh, like George Eldon Ladd, who I'm using as a resource in this series, uh, see that there's some symbolism here. But even as we're looking at the symbolism, we're, we're saying uh, probably and maybe and, and our, our, our best interpretation of this is. And we're not, we're not um, like zealously holding on to every interpretation. We're holding loosely to all of these things. But as we look at this, it seems a reasonable assumption to say these things about the symbolism behind why these locusts are described as they're described. Nine descriptors of the locust-like demons, horses prepared for battle. They are on a wartime footing. They have a wartime mindset. They know they're in a battle. They're coming prepared for battle. Secondly, they have heads with crowns of gold on them. They're victorious. They go in knowing they're going to win. They know that they're going to be successful at their mission and, and we know this to be true, that evil almost always has, apart from Christ, it always has the upper hand in people's lives. Thirdly, they have human faces. They're intelligent. They're not, they're not running. These aren't locusts running on animal instinct. They're not just beasts. They're intelligent. They're strategic. They're thinking through how they're going to take us out. They have hair like women's hair. This one was more difficult, but one commentator suggested that this showed the swiftness of these locusts as the hair flew behind them. This is blitzkrieg, lightning war. They have teeth like lion's teeth. They're ferocious. They are no holds barred. They are violent and vicious. Evil is seeking to take you out. They have breastplates of iron. They're formidable, strong. The noise of their wings is like many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They're intimidating, overwhelming our senses, crushing, even before they they get to you, crushing the souls of the opponents that they're coming against. They have tails and stings like scorpions. They're effective. They're skillful. They're good at what they do. And finally, they have as a king over them this angel of the bottomless pit, Abaddon, Apollyon, in the two biblical languages. The word means destroyer. Perhaps Satan or his senior designate leading these demons. But it makes it clear that unlike Regular locusts, these locusts are under authority. Now that description tells us that these demons are a force not to be taken lightly, not to be taken lightly at the end of time, not to be taken lightly now. Anyone without Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit is vulnerable to the relentless and effective attacks of Satan and his army of demons. He'll fight you. He wants to fight you. 
He'll fight you through direct spiritual dark influences if necessary, but it seems his preferred methods in our time and place is the world system around us and our own flesh. Who needs witchcraft and demons when you have the internet? It's enough. If Christ does not go into battle with you, you are lost now and for eternity. Demons win. The locusts consume you. The trauma of sin will crush you. Because again, they come in knowing it's a war. And most people don't know that they're fighting a war, that they're in a battle, that they're fighting at all. These evil agents are successful at causing people to sin. They're intelligent, they're crafty. They've thought deeply about how to mess with you and you specifically. They're swift, they're ferocious. And if you've ever tried to resist sin, you already are aware of how formidable they are. They're intimidating when they seek to convince us that sin is good for us. And they inflict so much damage as they follow the battle plan laid out by their king. But if you will follow your king, you will prevail against this horde of demons. But what will it take? If you have been to the cross and surrendered yourself, if you have received for yourself the power of the resurrection, the, the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, if that is yours, then you are able to match on every point the power of these demons because you have the power of the resurrection in you. So each day, waking up to have a wartime mindset, I am going to battle today. And therefore, I'm putting on the whole armor of God every day. I challenge his success by reminding him that I am victorious in Jesus Christ, that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. He won't beat me. He can't. We match the intelligence of the demons by obeying the command to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. How? By the renewing of our minds. So we agree with God. We align with the word of God. And as swift as the devil may be, as quick as his demons are to tempt us, to lead us astray, may we be just as swift to flee youthful passions, quick to recite the word when tempted. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. As Christians, we can be as ferocious and as formidable as any demon because this is the promise. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. 
He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so, he's intimidating. Intimidate him right back. Intimidate the devil. Intimidate the demons. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. No fear. That's how we become effective against him. That's how we escape the trauma of sin's effects. This is how the devil becomes as nothing to us. We don the armor that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, effective, and in all of this, in all of this, making it clear that we are under authority. Tell Satan who your king is. Tell the world who your king is. And most importantly, in order to battle your own flesh, tell yourself every day, multiple times during the day, tell yourself who your king is. Tell them, my clothes have been made white, cleansed by the blood of the lamb that was slain, and I too cry out with the multitudes of heaven, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Amen? Excuse me. It all ends with this. Agree with God's word and turn to him to escape the tragedy of human pride. Now remember that the first sin was rooted in pride. Back in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 5, the serpent is discussing with Eve and his convincing argument to her that it was okay for them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The big argument was that you shall be as God. You shall be as God. And in effect, all sin is rooted in that one temptation, that statement by the serpent, when we look to satisfy any craving or any desire in a way that is outside of God's will, we are exalting ourselves above him. It's pride at the root of it. Let me give you an example. Is it okay to use sex as an example? Parents will deal with this later. Again, the statement is this, when we look to satisfy any craving or desire in a way that is outside of God's will, we exalt ourselves above him. As an example, sex inside of a heterosexual marriage covenant, which is what God prescribes, isn't enough. I tell myself that's not enough. Okay? God says sex should happen inside heterosexual committed marriage covenant. That's not enough for me. And so I decide I'm going to have sex outside of that marriage covenant, either before the marriage covenant or outside of it once I'm in it. Or 
that I'm going to engage in same-sex relationship. And at the core of that, the core issue of that example is not the moral sexual issue that we make it out to be. It's pride. It's exalting yourself above God's word. You want to be as God. You want to set the terms for your own sexuality. You want to define the parameters around what it means to be right with God. Now, small g God, because you're him or her. You've set the standard for your own holiness. You have, in essence, written your own Bible that you can now live by. Here's the picture of pride that we see in this chapter. The rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues in the sixth trumpet, a third of the people on earth have just been wiped out as a result of their sin and their unwillingness to repent. So the two-thirds who are left who have watched this did not repent. Now, to be clear what repentance is, I kind of had it in my mind, you know, after all these years of preaching, I have this in my mind, this definition, this biblical definition, but I thought, you know what, just for giggles and kicks, I'm going to go back and check Merriam-Webster and see what the dictionary says about repentance, and it's entirely about remorse. It's all about contrition, and that's part of it. In fact, if we put the two parts together, we get a very strong definition of what repentance really is. Repentance is three aspects to it. I regret my sin. I agree with God and I turn to him. Regret, agreement, and turning. And where the non-biblical definitions fall short is in seeing beyond mere contrition. It's what you have is sadness for doing it, sorrow for doing it without any change. As Cheryl and I were raising our kids, um, I don't think any of my kids are in the room right now. One of my in-law kids is. I didn't raise him. Not responsible. But as we were raising our kids, I'm sorry was never, it never cut it. We never allowed our kids to say, I'm sorry. This is never enough. Well, you just did that to your brother. That was probably Luke to Joel, probably never Joel to Luke. You did that to your brother. We would never say, like, you would never get away with it if you just said, I'm sorry. What does I so- I'm sorry mean? Is it stops short? It's the, it, that's, the, that's the world's definition of repentance. It's contrition without change. I'm sorry I did it. What does that mean? I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry that there's been a consequence. But I'm not sorry leading to change so that I'm never going to do this again. I'm sorry I never cut it. Here's what needed to be said. And we would walk our kids through this every time. Not necessarily in these words. I've written them for this message. I regret hurting you. 
I agree it was wrong. And I'll change whatever needs to change to not do that again. Now you take that and you apply that to your marriage and you apply that to your child rearing, your family relationships and you apply that in your workplace and you apply that in your friendships and you apply that in the church. I regret that I hurt you. I agree it was wrong and I'll change whatever needs to change to not do that again. Robert South, who was a pastor in the 1600s, said this, true repentance has a double aspect. It looks upon things past with a weeping eye. There's the contrition. And upon the future with a watchful eye. I'm not going to do that again. These people in Revelation 9 couldn't accept that. They're seeing the devastating impact of God's judgment on the world around them as a result of their own sin. And they have no contrition, nor do they want to agree with God. And they're certainly not going to commit to not doing it. They did not repent, verse 20 says, of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols. And that had some very distinct moral outcomes to it. Verse 21 documents these. They didn't repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. They didn't want to change anything. How shocking is that to you? In light of everything that we've just read that they would have gone through, a third of the world died. They didn't even scratch the surface of that number with the nonsense we went through over the last two and a half years. Nothing. Try and understand this. Commentator Thomas Schreiner said this, John reveals that these events signify God's judgment, but that conclusion isn't evident to unbelievers. They are just as likely to interpret what is happening as a result of chance, fate, or chaos in the world. Judgments should lead unbelievers to repentance, but they rationalize what is happening and spin out another reality. And all of us know people, don't we, who are spinning out their own reality. Some of you in this room some of you watching online right now, you're spinning out your own reality. And the word of God's been proclaimed to you here today. Pride is so tragic. And in contrast, when we humble ourselves and confess our sin, we can escape from this tragedy. And so as I close this, let me plead with all here to escape the judgment to come. To be sorry for your sins and how you've lived your life, to agree with God about all of these things and to turn to him in faith alone. Now I'm gonna pray in just a moment and, and after the worship team leads us through a song, um, a short song to close off our time, people are gonna be up here at the front again just like we do at the end of all of our services. 
If you have not yet surrendered to Jesus Christ, I'm going to encourage you in particular to come. As the service is closing, you come and talk to one of those leaders at the front. Give your life to Jesus Christ. If you're watching on the live stream or on demand, contact us. Call out to the Lord right now, but certainly contact us and we'd love to pray with you and talk you through entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, these, uh, these messages get harder and harder as we move through the book of Revelation. And Father, we want to be so sober-minded as we hear them. And Father, there's much here for us to be encouraged with as believers. Father, I pray that we would, uh, Father, stand in the face of the demons that are very much at work today. And Father, we would have all the courage that comes from having the Holy Spirit indwell us. But Father, I pray for those especially who do not yet know you. And Father, in this moment, may be resisting your call. And Father, I pray your Holy Spirit would be convincing them of the truths that they've just heard, convicting them of their sin and of their need of Christ. And Father, as we sing this song, as we close this service, I pray that there would be many who would come to a realization of their need of Jesus Christ. It would shed the stubbornness. And today, God, they would change their mind. I pray this in the Savior's name. Amen.